Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. And that, ladies and gentlemen, signals the beginning of the latest edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined live in the studio today by the film guys. Indeed, it is my great pleasure to welcome the lovely and talented and today particularly great-haired George Willeman. George, uh, and the, I should say also, I mean, beyond the fact that you have great hair, you're the nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress, but that really doesn't hold a candle to your fine quaff today. Welcome. I often tried not to hold a candle to my hair, to tell you the truth. Yeah, whatever you do, don't set this guy's hair on fire around nitrate film. That could be very serious. Also live in the studio today, the normally just excellent hair, and today a little less, only because George looks so good. It is the one and only J. Todd Anderson, storyboard artist to all the big stars, the Coen brothers, 23, four years and counting, and uh, live in the studio with us today, it is J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Hello, Nikki Dakota. So nice for all of us to be here again because it is when we are all together that we celebrate the greatness that has been achieved in film and the film that brings us here today. Go ahead and say. Oh, uh, Wings of Desire by the great German director Wim Wenders. Or Wim Wenders here in, <laughs> yeah. in Ohio. It is actually W, isn't it? W-I-M-W-E-N-D-E-R-S. A lot of people have written us and asked us when I was in Europe last week when I was in Italy, they asked us, are you doing any foreign films? And this is one of our foreign films here, actually. This is a German film, right, George? Yeah. Is it subtitled? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, except for when Peter Falk talks. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's actually, right. Um, not only, most of, most of the dialogue is in German, except for the, the female lead who, who speaks in French. Oh, yeah. And Peter Falk does his lines in English. And uh, one of the characters they overhear is speaking Hebrew for a moment. And there's also uh, Quite at one a few point, dialects in this film. yeah, and there's one point where one of the uh, the angels listens to one uh, Oriental woman, and she's speaking in in Japanese or Chinese. So. Oh, how about that? So, um, you know, that's funny because I saw this movie just shortly after it was out, and it had I just loved it. 1987. That's 20 years ago, is it really? Yeah. yeah it was. It was also uh, there was an attempt to remake it um, with Nicolas Cage and uh, Meg Ryan. Um, but don't waste your eyes on that. I think is I, I, don't know. I can't judge it. I've never seen it, but I can tell you that um, this is a hard film to top because it is so unique. I just will never understand that that motivation and people that that idea to remake films that are so good to start with. Why the bother? motivation is the magic emollient. But it's very money. Funny. When I saw money this, is it. when I saw this some twenty years ago, it was a little after it was actually out. That's very funny because I remember the details and and what happened and, and the feeling in this film. How funny! I completely forgot that, that it other was film in was German called City of Angels. That's right. But it's really it, it's not even really a real remake of this movie. Right. I don't know how you could. Excuse me. Actually, remake this film because of the the incredibly personal nature of it, as far as Vim Vendors is concerned. We'll get into a little bit about how the hows and whys and wherefores of this film being made. It's very unusual. 
but it's a, not a Hollywood film. It is a perfect movie, though. And this is not completely capricious. This is not just come out of the sky. Oh, well, maybe this one's all right. We'll do this one. No, there are very strict and stringent rules, parameters that are set for the films on uh, the Film Guys perfect movie list. And gentlemen, those are... Well, first, these films create the world that they exist in. And they wholly sustain that world. And regardless of changes in society, they retain their meaning and entertainment value. And never, never not once, are they numerically rated one better than the other because they are all perfect in their own scale. La perfection. And it's like a, like a self-sustaining, it's like a circle that sustains itself. So along those lines, let's, um, let's consider first, and, and it absolutely creates its own world. Rule number one, completely nailed oh, down. Oh, man, this is an easy one on that one. This yeah. is just so easy. Uh, this is this is Angel World, and with that, George, would you be so kind as to give us a little, just a little tour guides, uh, little high points of the amazing scene that this movie sets and sustains? Yeah, the whole film takes place in Berlin, in, in contemporary Berlin, 1987, and it's still a city that even 40 some years after the war is still torn by that war. There are still buildings that are are damaged by the bombing, and of course, the wall was still up, the Berlin Wall separating uh, the sort of the free western side of Berlin with the communist-controlled eastern side of That's Berlin. That's right, soon to come down, but still mm-hmm. in 87, very much up. And and basically the, the crux of the story is that there are angels all over Berlin, and I can imagine, you know, all throughout the world, and they're invisible to the human inhabitants, but they sort of stand by them recording their thoughts that they then take back to heaven. And uh, they're not really allowed to interact with the humans. Observers. So it's they're more the guardian angels. They're sort like of guardian role. angels. Yeah, you'll see them standing behind them, uh, sitting with them with their with their sh- arms around the person's shoulders, and or or leaning their heads against the, yeah, the person's head. They're not heads. the burden of knowledge as as many times movies use the burden of knowledge. They are the knowledge. They they are emphatically wholly sustaining the knowledge. And and it centers on on two angels, uh, Damiel and Cassiel, who are played by Bruno Gans and Otto Sander, who have been together for eternity, basically, uh, and and have been basically in Berlin uh, just for millennia, watching and recording. And and Damiel has begun to to wonder what it would be like to be human, to actually feel the emotions that they are recording. To, to be able to, to to smell the smells and see the colors, uh, many in fact many people in this film talk about the colors, about seeing the colors or experiencing the colors. And this film is primarily in black and white. Or That's is right. It, or, or, does it or, flip? Be, well, or, or it's a European film, so it's monochrome. monochrome. <laughs> now, is there actually a distinction, or is that just a different nomenclature? No. But, you know. <laughs> On on uh, what is it? Wikipedia is that what they call it? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's monochrome. monochrome. You know the Europeans make films. We make movies. Yeah. That's the way it works. <laughs> right, so here here it'll be black and white photography. There it's monochrome cinematography. Wow. But yeah, Vendors right from the beginning said that he he felt that the the world of the angels needed to be in black and white. Um, he never really gives the exact reason, but it works beautifully. It's like they are there. They're they're within the world. But they can't really be part of it. They can't experience the colors or the smells or the sights. So their their world is kind of, uh, kind of sterile in some ways. Um, interestingly enough, though, as Damiel begins to get into the world a little more, as he experiences uh, begins to to 
sort of fall for this trapeze artist every once in a while. Dump, dump. Where was I? Oh, right. Falling He's falling for, for the, the artist. Um, well, every once in a while, of course, my point is totally blown now, so yeah. what the heck. Uh, well, every once in a while, the film will go into color to show that he is maybe actually getting a little closer to the human side of the world. Which, what, lo- what a nice, lovely use of mechanism for that, too. And yeah. the color, color is spelled C-O-L-O-U-R. Oh, right. Of course it right. is. That's the Favorite. English spelling, right? right? Right. Well, this is a German film, so it would be Farben. Um, and that's about the extent of my german thank you yes uh so anyways (laughs) as as the story goes on we we are revealed more about into the the world of the angels uh we see damiel helping a a motorcyclist who's been in a terrible accident who's dying and he is he's just his you know his mind is is just a shambles and damiel helps him begin thinking of, of wonderful things that he's experienced so that he doesn't have to die in pain um he meets uh, one of the characters is this old old man whom they refer to as Homer, much like the uh, the famous uh, story writer Homer of the, of the Odyssey. Yeah, uh, who is basically sort of the, the the spirit of the old Berlin, and he's kind of bemoaning the fact that that the young people are no longer interested in the old Berlin, and that even he cannot remember some of the places that have been destroyed because of the war, um, and he is almost almost an, an angelic figure in himself. And um, as the film progresses, it gets to the point where Damiel decides that he wants to give up his divinity. He no longer wants to be an angel. He wants to be human and experience these things for himself. And although his friend Cassiel is very upset by this, he lets him do it. And in a very, very interesting way, they're on the east side of the Berlin Wall. um, and, And Damiel basically fades into color. And then you see Cassiel carrying his friend's like lifeless form. They walk back through the wall, and then Damiel wakes up in color on the west side of the Berlin Wall, and the suit of armor falls on him. And it's basically like his angelic breastplate. Oh, yeah. yeah and, and he uh, he knows that he is human because he's bleeding red. His, his head is cut. And uh, he says, what color is this to one of the so German- passerby, yeah. and he says, It's red, you know, and he says, what color is that on the wall? Red. So he knows he's reinforced uh, by the fact that people are telling them that he's in color. Um, and, and the very first thing he does, he goes out and gets a cup of coffee. But uh, the reason he does this is because one of the other major characters in this film is a character played by Peter Falk, who actually is playing Peter, Peter Falk. Falk. Uh, Peter Falk, who is in Berlin making a film. He's playing a detective uh, after <laughs> World War II. Huh. No, and it's, it's not because there's Nazi soldiers. That's one thing that was very interesting is that there's real Nazis. Oh, yeah. there. And, and they say 1945 with a question mark. You know, yeah. It just doesn't they're really Nazi work men. together there. So he's shooting this film. But, um, but as he even, as with all the other characters, has these continual inner monologues, he keeps feeling that there's something something going on, something something that – that is calling to him, something that, that's there. And and in this one scene, which we're going to play a little audio clip from, um, Damiel has become very intrigued also by Peter Falk, as the actor, because he sees something in him. And Damiel approaches Peter Falk at a, a like a coffee stand and and suddenly realizes that, that Falk knows that he's there. I can't see you, but I know you're here. 
I feel it. You've been hanging around since I got here. I wish I could see your face. Just look into your eyes and tell you how good it is to be here. Just to touch something. See, that's cold. I feel good. Yeah. The smoke. Have coffee. And if you do it together, it's fantastic. There is also one interesting motivating factor for him becoming real into reality, and that could be... Oh, the girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's always, it's always one always of them. Girl. <laughs> the trapeze. <laughs> yeah. M.O., the girl with the magnificent long legs who does this geometry on this sling, man. <laughs> now, the really amazing thing about her, that her name is uh, Solveig. What's her last name? Uh, Solveig, Solveig Domartin. And uh, she was not a trapeze artist. She actually learned all that Could've for this me, movie. Man. I'll tell you. Um, she was actually Vim Vender's girlfriend at the time. Gee, I wonder and he why. said, well, and he said even he was amazed that in like eight Sad weeks, spot. in eight weeks, she learned to do all the tricks that you see, and she did them. She actually did them without a net. Truly amazing. No digitizing here. Yeah. We're talking about Wings of Desire, the Vim Vender's film from 1987 on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYSO. And without question, as far as the rules are concerned, it creates that world. And as far as sustaining it, you are completely sucked in. I want to tell you another little something that maybe I wasn't going to in the beginning. When I saw Wings of Desire, I had actually gone to the theater to see what I thought was a rerunning of um, Wizards. Remember Wizards that animated? Yeah, right. So I thought I was going to see that, but I had read the schedule wrong. So instead, sat down for this movie. So walked into it completely with no expectations, no understanding or anything, and was sucked in. In fact, I, I remember sitting, when it was all done, sitting much longer after in the studio just as these you know the the power of this movie was sort of washing over me so sustains it without question and uh so at about this point in in what george is going to tell you is is what i usually say this is where the movie gets better yeah, yeah well um after you know this is after damiel has become human and um and he's going by the the movie studio where they've been shooting this peter falk film and he tries to get in a couple times as an extra, and they won't let him in. He's got a he, terrible-looking coat okay, on. He's, he's, he's purchased these, what he thinks are, like, really cool-looking human clothes, and it's just this ridiculous-looking <laughs> He sees clothes. everything in black and white, and has this garish right. collar, you know? Which is also notable that all the angels have on the trench coats and a ponytail. Doesn't everybody right, have everyone a ponytail? Has, they all have ponytails. Yeah. yeah. They have these Brooks Brothers coats that they're wearing, these big, long coats. Yeah. But he actually goes to an antique store, and he sells his, his holy armor, uh, to get money to buy these these awful looking clothes. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, he's at the studio and he sees Peter Falk, and Peter Falk had called him. I think it was like Compañero, and so he calls out to him. He says, "Hey, Compañero!" and and Falk sees him and gets this big smile on his face and comes right over to the fence and shakes hands with him and says, "Oh, it's so good to see you. I I thought you would be taller." And this is where where Peter Falk reveals to him basically, yes. Okay, so we need a spoiler alert for this. Yes. It is revealed. It is revealed. (laughs) That uh, Peter Falk himself is a transformed angel. How cool. And that is the reason that he was able to to sense the presence of, of Damiel earlier in the film. And he asks him if he has any, you know, he wants to give him some money. And he says, oh, no, I've got money. He goes, oh, you what, you... 
you sold the armor, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's the way it always is. <laughs> and he got a much better price, and he embarrasses yeah. this guy by saying, I got a lot more money than you yeah, did. I got more money in New York than you did. <laughs> but we find out, I mean, that, that actually... I mean, how interesting at this final scene it is through through a fence, isn't it? They're like on the yeah, other the side fence, of a yeah, chain. Yeah, the fence is dividing them. They, yeah. They're hanging on it. It looks really cool. Their fingers are through the holes and everything. Yeah, it looks really good. Just lovely. So after he leaves Peter Falk, he decides to eat. The main reason is to go find the uh, the, the, girl. The, tra- the girl, the trapeze artist. And uh, the little circus that she works with, this little French circus, has, has packed up and is heading back, probably back to Paris. But she's decided to stay, to stay in Berlin and try to make her way. And uh, he gets to where the circus was, and there's nothing left but this sawdust ring. Um, and he goes, but he goes off looking for her. And and earlier in the film, he had seen her at a concert. This kind of yeah, this kind of uh, I don't know what you call it, late '80s industrial punk kind of music. Hmm. And uh, he sees a poster on the wall for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. And and he. For some reason, it's kind of it's like, oh yeah, this is something. So he goes to that concert, and sure enough, there she is. And but he doesn't approach her right away. Um, you know, they give Nick Cave a chance to do a song, and actually, Cassiel, the other the other angel, appears there too. So you don't know if maybe Cassiel has a little bit of something to do with with her eventually leaving the concert because you see her kind of get a, overcome by some kind of a feeling to leave the concert and walk across into the adjoining bar. Where Damiel is sitting at the bar, so and his she, friend is helping him yeah, out. Yeah, goes right up to him, and they have this this wonderful long conversation about about love and and are you the one and and basically he is, and they become a couple, and the film the film ends with him helping her do a new uh, trapeze routine. He's holding the rope. He's holding the ropes for her. Yeah. Which is symbolic of also sort of his role as the angel in a way. Right. Sort of like but the a- most interesting thing, and I do not think this was in the film when I saw it originally, but over the last shot, the ending of the film is the old the old storyteller again going off talking about, you know, the the need for storytellers and this, that, and that we have we have I can't remember the word is we've become or something like that. And then there's a the sky over Berlin and it says to be continued. But you don't think that was there originally? You think I that don't was know added? that was. I think that was added after he did the film uh, "Far Away, So Close," which is a, f- a continuation of the story with uh, Damiel and Cassiel and, and others. And uh, Damiel, I believe, I have not seen that one unfortunately, but I believe he begins to sort of regret his decision to leave to leave the Holy Realm. So we, do we don't can, can we speculate that since he's not an angel any longer, becomes human, that then he is going to have to die again and become yeah, and an he angel. Knows that. So that's the implication. All right. He knows that he's mortal and that he's going to die. Yeah. We're talking about Wings of Desire, fantastic film. In fact, perfect in every way. That's according to our film guys right here on Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. So rules one and two creates the world, certainly sustains it. And I'm interested to hear uh, your thoughts on rule number three about uh, it's uh, sustaining its value, and it's been 20 years, and I, I agree. Well, one of the reasons it's gonna, this movie is going to stick around is because it's so unique. As I said before, it's very different film structure. Uh, it's almost like this uh, mad poem out of control, which a lot of the dialogue is from a poem. Uh, but the, um, the tone in this picture is, is one of, of just, it's very deliberate. Uh, and it, a lot of it is done with sound design. I mean, uh, like we talked about, the monochromatic look is like, as if it's Angel's point of view most of the time, and that gets established, you know, pretty 
uh, pretty strongly be, simply because uh, the tone and the sound design, the music in this uh, will just kind of float you along. And the camera really never stops moving in this picture. It's uh, The whole thing is like a, a cacophony of uh, uh, it's of cognition, cognition, you know. Yeah, it's a cognizant thoughts, you know, a cacophony of cognizant thoughts yeah. in it. Uh, yeah, there's there's a scene where the camera just kind of drifts through the rooms in this large apartment building, and you meet all the different people who live there, and you just kind of overhear their thoughts. And a lot of times their thoughts are totally disconnected. Um, there's the scene of the – there's a young man who is contemplating suicide on top of a building. And it's one of the really heart wrenching scenes because you don't you kind of think at first that he's doing it, but and he jumps, but he just jumps a little ways off like a high, like an air conditioning unit onto the roof, and he's talking, and his thoughts are just all over the place. And he gets to the edge of the building, and the angel Cassiel is there with him and listening to all these thoughts. And then the young man does jump off the building, and Cassiel is just distraught because he does not have the power to stop the young man from uh, from jumping. He tries to comfort him. You know, in his angel's ways, but, but, and you know, for like the next twenty minutes, you see Cassiel; he's just totally distraught by the suicide. They're always they they get right up on top of somebody, and they're they're like as if they're talking to them, but they they're not. And then you'll cut away to another shot, and you're this point of view of the camera. The camera, like when the uh, guy is dying of a motorcycle accident, the camera is going back and forth, right, almost like as if uh, the angel is is just just hovering around and then they'll cut to another shot and he's right up on his shoulder listening to him so the interesting one of the interesting things they use in this movie is it's based in reality but still there's this element of believability uh like many court cartoons are they're not interested in reality they just want you to believe but this has a little bit of both and it and it does it in almost this this dance the pacing is this dance all the way through the movie it's very surreal and ethereal all the time and you just uh touched on it that it was based on a, a poem is it a japanese poem did is that what no you had no said? it's um uh i can't remember who it was there was a poet named i think his name is is either wilke or rilke i can't remember oh rilke was, yeah yeah, yeah. Was, uh, who vendors had become very enamored of mm. and who has a lot of angel angels and angel imagery in his poetry um, also, Peter Hanka, who uh, who helped write the script as a friend of Vendor's, uh, said he wouldn't write the script, but he would write him some dialogue scenes. So they would write these dialogue scenes. The film, actually, when they started shooting the movie, they did not really have a script. They just kind of started shooting it. And it. A lot of it's done in the editing. When they're driving along, you're saying to yourself, is this East Germany? Is this West Germany? Is this Berlin right after the bombings? And no sooner than you catch yourself asking yourself, is this East Germany or West Germany? And the guy's riding in the car. One of the angels is riding a car, and he looks out the windows, and he sees people with shovels yeah. right after the war. So they really bust the time barriers, and they just take you – Ben Venders takes you wherever he likes in this, and it works into his narrative simply because uh, he designs it to work like that. Maybe they had to do quite a bit of editing to get it, but it looks like they've always had an idea of where this movie was going to go. They just had to keep polishing it and forming it. But it is – it's absolute uh, – you can watch this movie several times and learn something new every time you watch it. It's just so different in the way it's constructed and made. So they're guided by feel almost. Right, and it? I think one of the great choices that Vendors made 
was to hire the the cinematographer Henri Alacan to shoot the film. And Alacan was an old. He was, yeah, he was almost years eight old. years old. His assistant was even older. Uh, <laughs> they brought him in from Paris, and, and he had shot uh, uh, Jean Cocteau's uh, Beauty and the Beast, which is an absolutely just exquisite movie. And he'd also shot uh, William Wyler's Roman Holiday and many, many other films. And he came in and, and you know, basically shot this like he was shooting black and white back in the 40s with all these lights and these beautiful uh, constructions. And from what I understand, every shot that he did – he had this special filter that was made from one of his grandmother's silk stockings. <laughs> and they had to, like, you know, gaffer tape it over the end of the, this Aeroflex camera they were using because it wasn't built to go on that camera. Well, no, it's built to go on a leg. Grandmother's leg. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so it gives everything this kind of misty look to it, you know. That's great. And, and that it was a specific. house hadn't been washed in 50 years. <laughs> so you know how they talk about a little piece of so-and-so and everything they do, the little piece of grandma and then every uh, But And as, actually, as sort of a tribute, because Benders is really big on, on remembering people in his films, the, the little circus, the little French circus is called the Circus Alicane. It's as sort of a, a tribute to to Henri Alicant. Oh, nice! And also, there's an interesting, isn't there, a dedication on the? Uh... Oh yeah, one of my favorite things is the very end. There's a dedication in the end credits that reads, "Dedicated to all the former former angels, but especially to Yasujiro, Francois, and Andre." And those three are uh, Yasujiro Ozu, the Japanese director, who is uh, one of Vendor's biggest. Uh, Influences, Influences yeah. excuse me. Uh, Francois Truffaut, who had just died a couple of years before, and Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, the famous Russian director who did uh, um, uh, Solaris, amongst others, uh, who had also died just recently. Oh, what a very nice tribute. Uh, you know, also knows uh, visually in this movie, angels, whenever they're depicted, their wings are always very symmetrical and they're vertical. Uh, unlike birds, which fold up, angels' wings are always very vertical. Most of the imagery in this movie you'll see where they're using matchbook patterns a lot where people are standing nose to nose in perfect symmetry and it looks very much like the wings images that he establishes early in this picture where he's standing you know there's a really great looking poster shot where he's looking down with the only children can see him sometimes at least that's what i was oh, led to believe right. you know? yeah. That's right. yeah. throughout, throughout the film children can see the angels one of the opening shots is he's standing up on this building with his his beautiful just very, very much like the philadelphia a sculptor in the train station of this angel, and he, the kid can see him. And through this movie, he uses this beautiful symmetrical patterns where people meet and they move away, and it just, you just have to kind of look for that once in a while. But it is really gorgeous the way he weaves that all the way through the visuals on this movie. Fantastic. We've been talking about Wings of Desire. We are quickly running out of time, gentlemen. Uh, Wings of Desire, 1987 film by Vim Binders on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYSO. And I uh, absolutely agree. This film that's been so long since I've seen it still, I just, I remember the feel. So how, not surprising in a way that they, they wrote and, I mean, wrote it as they made it and sort of went by sense of feel. It definitely has an almost visceral attraction. And, it's like uh, a ghost ship with wings. It's a very, very odd kind of combination of elements. And it's definitely n not like anything you've seen, that's for sure. 
Without question. Hey, that's just the kind of thing you're likely to get here on Filmically Perfect, right here on WYSO. Hey, if you'd like to send us a little thought, uh, give us some thoughts on some of the movies we've reviewed, or you can listen to podcasts of the ones that we have on our list and uh, eagerly await each one as we put it up on a Monday. Stop by the WYSO website at WYSO.org, or you can go to perfectmovie.net, and that's perfectmovie.net with the email being filmguys at perfectmovie.net. All kinds of ways to make contact. We hope that you do. And listen to Filmically Perfect live every Friday at 1230 on 91.3. Gentlemen, can we give a little sneak peek of what we got coming up next week? Uh, next week, we're going a more sophisticated... Uh, yes, we're sophisticated we're going to uh, <laughs> take a look at a, a just most important... One of the most important films of the of late 70s. Icon. That's right. Uh, John Landis's National Lampoon's Animal House. <laughs> Tune in next time. Filmically Perfect. Contact the film guys at filmguys at perfectmovie.net. We'd love to hear from you. J. Todd Anderson, thank you. You're very welcome. Mr. George Willeman, always a pleasure. As likely, yes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.